The only purpose of the Talking Space podcast is to educate and to inform. The views expressed in this program are the opinions, experiences, and conclusions of the guests. They do not represent the official policy or position of the Space Tweep Society as a whole, NASA, any other space agency, company, contractor, or affiliate. We choose to go to the moon. episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space Podcast episode 223, and today we have a very patriotic interview with a true American hero for this episode, and Gina has more information on who this is. Gina? Tonight we have with us a very special guest, a member of NASA's third class of pioneering astronauts, Walter Cunningham, who may be best known as America's second civilian astronaut. Walt Cunningham occupied the lunar module pilot's seat for the 11-day mission of Apollo 7 and was backup crew for the Apollo 1 crew, which perished in a tragic launch pad fire. After his successful Apollo 7 test flight, Mr. Cunningham was the chief of the Skylab branch and oversaw the hardware and planning of the onboard experiments. Prior to NASA, he was a scientist for the RAND Corporation, working on defense studies and the Earth's magnetosphere. Before that, he was an active Marine Corps fighter pilot with the present rank of retired colonel and has accumulated more than 4,500 hours, 4, hours of flying time, including more than 3,400 in jet aircraft and 263 hours in space. Currently, Walt is an investor and director of numerous public and private companies, frequent lecturer, and the author of The All-American Boys, The Human Side of the Space Program. Welcome to Talking Space, Walter Cunningham. How are you tonight? Doing fine, Gina. It's going to be nice visiting with you. Excellent. Well, we are so excited to have you with us, and we sure know our audience has uh, very eager to hear what you will have to say about NASA's current direction and current space policy. And with that, I'll let Sawyer lead off with the first question for you. Great. Thank you, Gina. Thank you again, Walt, for joining us tonight. Uh, my first question is in regards to the past. Since you were on Apollo 7 and you were around when President Nixon canceled the Apollo program in favor of the space shuttle program. Do you notice any similarities or any major differences between when Nixon canceled the Apollo program and President Obama now planning to cancel the Constellation program? Well, President Obama has uh, canceled the space program, uh, the uh, Constellation program, if it goes through on his proposed budget. there are some similarities and some differences. The uh, similarities, of course, is that there's going to be a gap without an American capability of flying humans into space. But there's a lot of great differences also. I was there at the time. In fact, I was on a panel in, or a committee, I guess, in 1971 where we were discussing, uh, uh, that was 1971, we were discussing the space shuttle and making a commitment shortly thereafter to develop a space shuttle. So we had another uh, launch vehicle uh, 
in the works, in the planning stages, and moving along, well along by the time the last uh, Apollo spacecraft flew in the mid-60s. Uh, That's not the same as what we've got facing us here. It seems to be part of our history here in the United States with our space programs to develop something, develop something really very good, and then uh, instead of evolving it into something else or the next stage, we tend to throw it away and start over fresh again. Uh, the Russians have, uh, there are a lot of differences between our program and the Russian program, and in many areas, the Russians don't come out looking too good compared to the U.S. program. On the other hand, they have evolved from the very beginning. They are still flying the, uh, the boosters that they flew uh, the first time way back in the 1960s. Uh, they move by evolution, not by throwing away and starting over very often. Uh, they did that with the Buran uh, and then threw it away. It almost broke, broke them, as a matter of fact, trying to do it. But we could learn something by evolving, uh, even now, for example, evolving the shuttle into something else. So do you believe that we should be flying the shuttle longer than 30 years and for more than the 134 scheduled flights? Uh, that's the simplest question I've ever been asked, actually. <clears throat> the uh, worst mistake ever made by NASA, because it was pretty much made within NASA, was to cancel uh, the space shuttle. I know there was a necessity, uh, <clears throat> perceived necessity, in order to have any money to develop a uh, follow-on program. Uh, <clears throat> but it uh, it was a very, very big mistake. The shuttle is the safest, and I want to emphasize this, the safest manned spacecraft we've ever had in this country. And there will be a long time, even if they succeed in developing a new spacecraft, before we can say that it's actually safer than the space shuttle. And I don't know of anything that's going to be coming along in the next 30, 40 years that will have the capability of the space shuttle. So there are things that we could have done, should be doing, to take advantage of the strengths of the uh, space shuttle orbiter, uh, the whole transportation system, and evolving it into our uh, next generation vehicle or next generation program. Um, the, well, the Columbia Investigation Board obviously pointed out several problems with the space shuttle. Obviously, this goes back to its initial design that the crew was sitting next to solid rocket fuel and not on top of its payload and away from its boosters. When you say that the space shuttle is the safest vehicle we've, we have and you don't see anything coming close to being developed um, in the next couple of generations, and obviously, I mean, it's had two major tragedies, what is it about um, the space shuttle that you believe makes it so safe? I'll start off by telling you that the shuttle, if they fly next, will be the safest shuttle mission that we've ever flown because these vehicles get safer as they go on. The probabilistic risk assessment right today for the space shuttle is they're talking, <clears throat> these numbers have been all over the board, but they pretty well settled in on uh, 80, meaning a 50-50 chance of losing a vehicle or worse in 80 missions. Uh, a comparable figure had it been run because it was, was done by uh, Oh, I can't remember, uh, SAIC, I think, ran it some years back, 
comparable figure for Apollo would have been 18. And I can tell you we felt perfectly safe on it. Now, are there risks going into space? Yes. There will always be risks. We should minimize them, but it shouldn't be try to eliminate risk at any cost. One of the reasons we were so successful in Apollo is because they kept the risk and safety features in context with the other things we were trying to do. That seems to be a lost art around here on the space program. The Columbia Accident Investigation Board, in my opinion, went beyond their charter uh, with some statements about uh, uh, shuttle safety. Uh, NASA, if anything, overreacted to it. Uh, they had another one, uh, what was the, uh, after the, uh, <coughs> excuse me, after the Challenger disaster, <coughs> they made some uh, a significant effort. After the Columbia disaster, they went beyond their charter, and that's when they started developing this uh, argument about the safety of the vehicle. Now, that's been the whipping boy uh, right along now, because nobody has wanted to come out and, uh, and argue it or debate it in any way. And we aren't going to settle it here, actually, tonight. And uh, the only thing that's kind of moved that off the top of the list is since the Augustine Commission met, and I've spent about an hour with them by myself uh, when they were out here, uh, the Augustine Commission has uh, added to that, and the Augustine Commission has now become the, uh, I guess I'd call it the whipping boy on the new policy because they justify everything by saying, well, this is what the Augustine Commission said or this is what the Augustine Commission said. Well, the Augustine Commission uh, had a broader charter than uh, just the safety of the vehicle. And secondly, their principal charter, and one that they adhered to, incidentally, I, I'm, I'm, I uh, have to commend them for that, was that they were not to spend any more money supposed to hold it to the budget that they've had. That has been the death knell on NASA programs now for the last couple of decades. And until somebody is willing to propose more money being spent for a very expensive pursuit to be the preeminent country in space, until that comes about, we're going to have all kinds of comments, criticisms, and arguments going about on about how to do it. Uh, Walt Jean McCulkey here. First, uh, thank you for joining us tonight. Um, it's in that vein, how do you go about selling spaceflight in a society today that just seems to be so risk adverse? Um, it, it just seems like all the time that that we're always worried about, you know, if something happens or if we cut our nail, we we cut a fingernail or something like that, you know, somebody's going to turn around and sue somebody. How do you go about? I mean, how do you go about selling something like this to in a society that we just expect everything to be be right and no, nothing uh, nothing's gonna no, nothing's gonna happen to us? Well, Gene, uh, good question, and you put your finger right on uh, the problem with it. Is we are now living in a risk-averse society. We didn't get there overnight. It's taken a number of years. I have personally been speaking out about this risk-averse society for the last. 20 or 30 years, and uh, that's something we're going to have to uh, at, we're going to have to just attack it head on in some way because there's a lot of questions when people say a good part of the population will say you know why do we go into space in the first place you know you know and also you get down to say why risk somebody's life for that well 
those are people that do not understand that the principal gain that we made out of the space program since its beginning 50 years ago was not sending a few people out to the moon or not giving us the thrill of a ride in space. It was what came out of it. It was the technology that came out of the space program. It was the economic engine that drove uh, our economy for so many years. Things were either improved or sometimes invented uh, right out of clear air. And that's what happens when you tackle the impossible. When you're willing to take a risk, such as going to Mars. What's the first thing you encounter? Problems. Some of those problems will seem absolutely impossible to overcome. But most of them, we will find a way to do it. And then that technology that does that filters its way into our economy. It's what has helped leave us for at least the last 30 years, you know, a leading economic power, a preeminent space uh, uh, power in the world, and that is going to be missing going forward. Uh, the, uh, well, you've, you've echoed things that I've said to people so many times that, that you know, it, it's not about, um, it, it's not, we're not shooting bags of money up there. We are, we are actually, through the technology we're developing, we're actually solving problems down here. It's all about down here. So Absolutely. I, appreciate, I appreciate you uh, you emphasizing that. Um, you had mentioned, um, you know, carrying, I was reading a book in, in, in the back there, and you're mentioning, you know, extending shuttle uh, forward uh, for at least another 10 years. I'm remembering a, a blog that uh, uh, Wayne Hale had written back in 2008 um, on his, uh, his blog entry there, uh, indicating that that, that might, extending shuttle for another few years may not be possible because of the, the parts pipeline. How do we go about addressing that problem if we go ahead and want to extend shuttle? Um, is there maybe some out-of-the-box thinking that we're just, we're just not, we're missing or, or something along those lines? Well, <clears throat> extending the space shuttle would be number one on my priority list, but if I was putting odds on on what can be done going forward from this confused mess right now, <clears throat> I would put it way down in third or fourth place. Very, very difficult to accomplish. Not impossible, and we could certainly end up having a lot of flights going up into space and having NASA in the human spaceflight business a lot sooner than it could, either with Constellation or waiting on uh, commercial developers out there to do these things. So, uh, they were not supposed to be shutting down the pipeline of parts. You know, just about ready to ship the last tank, for example. Mm -hmm. But they could start up and redo that stuff a whole lot quicker than, than we could, probably even starting up and restarting with Constellation. And I don't give that one too much hope going forward either. I, I think that uh, uh, I've been working, and many other people have too, to try to help Congress be in a position of overriding some of this stuff. But it's very, very difficult when you have a, uh, a, uh, a president who does not want us to be preeminent in things. Uh, you know, he's probably got his own reasons, but whatever it is, it isn't the same as the rest of us out here in the public field, or even the young people are there. The young people are going to be embarrassed when they get older, study history, 
and find out on what we were today or 20 years ago and what we have turned into 20 years from now if we don't continue this desire to be preeminent. And I'll come back once more. That's going to be a physical impossibility unless people are willing to pay more money to do it. Yeah, agreed. I mean, we, we have to go ahead as a society and, and decide for ourselves that we indeed are going to go ahead and make the investment, underlying investment, not not spending money on this. I mean, we are investing money really in our future on, on, in this entire program. Um, in The president yesterday, or at least the White House yesterday, released um, a new national space policy. I guess you've had a chance to you know, go ahead and take a look at it. Um, I haven't seen the... Uh the whole thing. I haven't. I would like to have, be able to uh, get a copy, of that, a PDF file of it or something. But I, I just read some of the summaries, brief things out of it. I didn't find anything terribly illuminating. Yeah, there wasn't really. You know, there were a few surprises, surprises in there. But when we we kind of picked it apart on a on a previous podcast here, um, it looks like the centerpiece of the whole thing is going to be COTS. Um, why do you think, you know, why are we all of a sudden going ahead and just sort of shutting the whole thing down? And I mean, I grant you, we are creating a new, you know, new business sector. But to me, I think we have to go ahead and, and, and keep, you know, COTS going, but also keep the exploration arm going. Uh, what What's your opinion of, of COTS all of a sudden becoming the centerpiece of the U.S. space program? Well, <laughs> I find myself in an interesting position here because cuts <clears throat> uh, is a uh, a big unknown. I'm um, I'm a person who basically believes in free enterprise and private enterprise to be out doing these things when they can. I also raised and ran my own venture capital fund for 12 years, and I know what it means <clears throat> to have a startup and be commercially successful. And if there was if there was a commercial return, then you could get commercial investment into you know companies like SpaceX or uh, you know Orville uh, Systems. All of these companies are going to have to raise money. Right now, they're talking about being a company with a sole customer, which would be NASA, or maybe they'll send sell some vehicles to uh, other military or maybe some other country. But that's not the same as a, a commercial success. NASA has been spending this the same huge amount of money with contractors over the years, and they have stayed on top of it. In fact, uh, a major reason why they've been successful is because NASA had their own man, uh, management and operations people and engineering people to look over uh, Rockwell when they were building the uh, Apollo vehicle or uh, the uh, lunar module. I mean, I, I practically lived at the contractors, and we had a lot more engineers out there living there all the time. And it was a commercial purchase. It was purchased from a private company in the business. What they're doing now is turning themselves loose from the operations of this. Uh, can it work? <clears throat> uh, don't know why not. Eventually, in the long run, as long as we keep feeding it money, but I don't believe that people like Elon Musk have a real handle yet on what it costs to do this kind of a job. It, it's uh, they have a 
learning curve to go through. I hope they make it uh, uh, without costing too much. <clears throat> they will have their losses. The whole thing will be a whole lot different than it is uh, and has been in the past. So uh, at the same time, in the last, you, you say you had that new plan that came out from the White House yesterday. They also had an article just a couple days ago talking about the misconceptions that swirled around the Obama space plan. Did you see that one? Yes, sir, I did. Yeah, and they filled up a, a bunch of straw men in there. Those aren't misperceptions. There's differences of opinion on what's going on. And uh, talking about killing the space program, they say, no, no, this is making it even better. NASA has been, uh, let me how to put this. They have been forced, <clears throat> since February 1st, they've been forced to put as good a picture and as good a face on this new direction as they possibly can. Uh, and it, has, it involves a bit of imagination from time to time. Almost everything that they said they're doing new on this new policy would have been absolutely essential had they continued just what they were doing, developing new vehicles, doing research. Well, going on for years when we were in a focused human space program. As soon as you get that focus off, then it loses its uh, uh, urgency to come through with those breakthroughs. So now they're saying, oh, we haven't lost our focus. We're going to go to Mars someday, uh, go to an asteroid. You could say that about any program. You could have said it 10 years ago before this latest budget message, because one of these days we're going to do those things. But that's different from having a program which has got milestones and places along the way where you can see what you have to have done uh, to get it done. So uh, I haven't seen one good rational justification for the president's new budget for NASA except one. Quit spending the money. And that's consistent with what uh, uh, President Obama has always said until about a two-month period there in 2008 in Florida, down there to get the, to try to get the votes in Florida. He's always been against the NASA uh, budget. I would suspect that he sees it as mostly waste. He wanted to take the money and use it someplace else. And the only justification I can see for what they've been doing to NASA with this new budget is to save money and the growth of the expenditure of that money. Speaking of along the lines of trying to save money, it looks and 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 the rationale around it, it looks like we are also going to be depending on the Russians for access to the International Space Station. James Oberg um, wrote an interesting piece in MSNBC um, on the MSNBC website, sort of on relying heavily on the Russians for um, ISS access, and he pointed out a few reasons as to why we shouldn't. Um, I was wondering what. Uh, what your thoughts on that was? Well, uh, there are a lot of pluses and minuses <clears throat> with the Russians. Over the years, I've come to have uh, a lot of respect and some admiration for some of the things they do, but they do not meet our standards. They have never measured up to our standards. You know, they're still having problems with separation bolts uh, 40 years after they had their first problems with separation bolts uh, back in Yuri Gagarin's flight. 
I mean, uh, so there's things that are different there. Now, can we count on them? <clears throat> uh, if you're just talking about space-wise, operationally, I would say probably yes. Is $50 million a good price <clears throat> to pay? Boy, that's a whole lot cheaper than what it cost us to develop the capability to do that, or COTS, or anybody else. So <clears throat> that's not the problem. The problem is when we lose American independence, America's ability to pick its own way, to make its own decision if necessary, to be preeminent instead of just one of the crowd. For those who do not think that it's important to be number one on the block, then this is okay. For those of us who were raised and grown up and have devoted our lives to doing the best job we could with anything we had to challenge us, that's not good enough. Uh, and it's not good for society as a whole. The whole world is benefited by the fact that we've been setting the pace and uh, showing them what can be done in a formerly impossible realm. Yeah. Um, again, um, just to just to just follow up with that a little bit. Um, is that the reason why you think think we are going to be lo losing that? Is it is it just a desire for for you know a, a kumbaya sort of a kumbaya moment? Here, you know, uh, saying, okay, we're all going to conquer space together, or is it just, you know, something saying, okay, we've had it with low Earth orbit, and that's it. Or we've had it with space in general, you take it over. Well, there's uh, all kinds of little angles working on this. Uh, for example, I think that it's okay to uh, have joint ventures on doing some of these things uh, as long as a couple of rules are followed. As long as there is a leader in it, and there's no question in my mind who that should be uh, right now, and as long as anyone else involved carries their weight, but they're not carried. Uh, we tend to be suckers out there in the world when it comes to this. Uh, some people carry their weight, some people don't. I think... Probably, uh, you know, the Europeans and Canadians, they've been making good contributions to Japanese. Uh, uh, the Russians, uh, if I was talking about uh, quid pro quo, I'm not sure they have. For example, uh, uh, we rescued a near bankrupt Russian space program back when we did the uh, uh, shuttle Mir program. Uh, it wouldn't have lasted had we not been there. We've, we've infused billions of dollars into the Russian uh, space industry over the years. Uh, and we've paid for uh, modules that they've supplied uh, to be part of the entity. And they think of it as uh, <clears throat> their own uh, condominium. They don't understand the difference between a partnership and a condominium. They, they still think that they control the modules that came from Russia, even those that we paid for. Everybody else understands that if it's a partnership, everybody has a piece of the whole ball of wax. So you're going to have to work to, uh, and you're going to have to be aggressive because I guarantee you the Russians are going to be aggressive. And if we're not willing to do that, we're not going to get a fair deal. 
Walt, this is Mark Ratterman. I've, I've got a question. We were briefly on, uh, well, actually more than briefly, but talking about COTS. And I've seen recently that the contractor that's involved with the Orion crew module has said that they feel they could do, um, you know, do the job that that's asked of them if there was less uh, NASA oversight for a lesser amount of money. Do you think that's the case, and do you think that's wise? I know that during the uh, earlier days of our space program, there was an incredible amount of involvement, like you said, with engineers on site at the manufacturers. Well, less oversight, I'm not convinced yet, is, is an advantage uh, for NASA. I can see where it might save some money. Uh, a little story from my book, I can remember when I was out there living at Rockwell, and our crew was out there for Apollo 2, which was canceled eventually. And I can remember we were there at all the design reviews and uh, uh, testing, everything went on. And whoever was the head of uh, Rockwell at the time took uh, Dr. Gilruth aside and says, look, we were on schedule and doing just fine until you started sending the astronauts out here. And Dr. Gilruth says, that's okay. We're not charging you for their time. Because he knew what we were contributing. But that's because he came out of the X-Plane programs. And we had people that, in those days, that had lived with developing new hardware. They knew that the end user could contribute a lot to it. It's like right now. They've got some uh, former astronauts, you know, working like at SpaceX uh, and some of these other places. Uh, But SpaceX, I guarantee you, is going to be run a whole lot different than NASA was. Uh, can it probably be done cheaper out that way? Little doubt in my mind. I mean, uh, it just simplifies things. But I'm not sure how successful it can be. Uh, yeah, I consult with uh, some private companies uh, from time to time, and it's a whole different world out there uh, on human rating on safety and all those things, and NASA just keeps saying, says, well, safety's our number one priority. I know it, if anything, it's too much of a priority right now. But these other places have a long ways to go, and they're not going to have the kind of growth capability that NASA could do right now. You also mentioned the uh, Orion. I assume you, you must be talking about Orion Light because the latest iteration was, well, we'll do a smaller Orion capsule. Is that what you're talking about? Yes, sir. That's uh, that's the latest news I'd heard. I'd I'd forgotten that term, but I understand it. Yes. Well, that that, in my opinion, is a um, that's an attempt to buy a lot of critics off, and is not a good thing to be doing. That was to develop an Orion-like spacecraft that you could park up at the uh, space station and use it to. well, you can't in an emergency. It was a lifeboat. We've already got a lifeboat. It's the Soyuz spacecraft. <clears throat> uh, we need a redundant lifeboat like we need a hole in the head. The only time it would ever have any real practical use is if there was a falling out with the Russians. And if I was going to be addressing my concern about a falling out with the Russians, I'd be pursuing ahead with my own best space spacecraft, or I'd be continuing to fly uh, the shuttle orbiters. They won't do that because they want to take the money that, that it costs for the shuttle orbiters to 
devote to these other directions which are not human spaceflight. Um, Walt, Obama has cited that he believes uh, Constellation wasn't going in the right direction. It was over budget. It was behind schedule. Um, do you, one, believe that um, its initial design was never properly funded in the first place when it was kicked off and launched as to be the replacement for the shuttle program? And two, considering the Saturn V was the most successful heavy lift vehicle of all time and with a flawless record, why is this taking us so long to develop? I mean, we got to the moon in less than nine years in the 60s when all of this technology was brand new, now that NASA has an archive of knowing what's worked and what hasn't, why does this need to take so bloody long? <laughs> Times are changing, and all, not always for the better. <clears throat> but uh... Initially, do you believe that from the get-go of Constellation? Oh, yes, do you yes, think yes initially I understand. Yes, and the problem, that's another thing. It's a, these are just straw man that he put up there. When you sit and complain about uh, Constellation being late and over budget, it's just not fair because it's uh, up until the time that they said the cancellation, and they're working now to cancel it, obviously, you can see it, uh, it's been underfunded by 30% of what the original plan was. And you rarely can you do it on the original numbers. I mean, NASA low, low uh, balls the uh, the estimate, and Congress knows that and buys it and what have you. But then they kept cutting it even after that. So it never was fair to do that. In fact, one of the, the reasons that it even stayed up to where it was was Mike Griffin, uh, he stuck to the budget. And that meant that he had to t cancel uh, other very useful and very uh, valuable uh, programs there in order to just try to keep the, uh, the uh, constellation on schedule and on uh, on budget, but it was impossible. So unless they're willing to add some money, nobody ever even talks about that. Then they're never going to do anything about that. And yes, it does take a lot longer. Did you ask, start, start off by asking? Did I think that the constellation as conceived uh, was the best way to go? Well, we're getting into a different area here, and uh, I'm one of those that was not what I would say a wild enthusiast for Constellation as formulated, uh, but for different reasons than some other people were. For example, I've never been one that wanted to spend a lot of time setting up a, uh, a base on the moon. I want to just keep pushing on out towards Mars. But there are other people that would argue just as aggressively that, that that's a good thing to do. Uh, so the Constellation program, it ran into a lot of problem because there are people out there, and many of them have been in touch with me along the way, who had a different concept. Uh, I can't remember some of the names that they had on them, you know. Uh, and then they still like to see something done about it. If it was me... And they were they got some money to continue constellation. I would suggest that they have a another legitimate in-house study 
of uh, various alternatives of accomplishing uh, that last vision for space that we had. Uh, give some of these other people a chance to find out why uh, their approach to it was not the one that was accepted. But I do think this, I think if you put the money in that it needed, that it requires to do it, that the Constellation program would be a success for what it was trying to do. Okay, and with our experience from Saturn V development, again, I mean, we've we've made such a successful heavy lift vehicle in the past. Why really, I mean, why is it taking so long? I mean, I'm I'm an Apollo baby. I was born during Apollo. So, um, you know, to me, watching my sons, my young sons now have to go years before they can watch other Americans lift off into space on their own is very frustrating. And just trying to understand, you know, if we can get to the moon from scratch in eight or nine years, why is it going to take so long now? I mean, even if we had all the money that was supposed to be in the budget for Constellation, it still was projected to take quite some time. Uh, yeah, in fact, it was 18 years to get to the moon, whereas before we did it in uh, nine, actually a little less than nine, and that was after having a 21-month uh, delay because of the Apollo 1 fire. But you notice that when they had an accident on uh, the Challenger, for example, it was 33 months before they were able to get back in the air, and they knew exactly what had caused the accident. Back in uh, the Apollo 1 fire, we never did find out exactly where the spark had come from, but in spite of that, we were able to get back in the air in uh, 21 months. So a lot of things changed. I think that there's a lot of uh, emphasis on reinventing the wheel when they're trying to develop, you know, a new heavy lift vehicle. Frankly, I think that the shuttle is a very, very capable heavy lift vehicle, and I would be trying to evolve it into something. Uh, if we're going to have to put things together in orbit, Shuttle be an ideal vehicle to be hauling, you know, 35, 40,000 pound uh, units up there to put together for uh, interplanetary travel, for example, or even uh, uh, lunar travel. You could do it with a space shuttle uh, without having to reinvent the wheel. And if your complaint was, well, it costs too much for maintenance and what have you on the uh, uh, on checkout on the shuttle, well, spend some money. Uh, doing some of those things that we should have done when we made it, but they didn't want to take the time. They they made a lot of compromises to save money when they were building the first shuttles. And go back and fix those things up. Evolve the vehicle to what is useful next. I got a quick question, Walt. Would you say that there's some competition between the various interests for funding in NASA with science and robotics missions versus manned spaceflight? Well, I think that there is and probably always has been. There are probably a few people around who uh, you see articles I every once in a while, you know, that don't believe in manned uh, And I've always been a, a strong supporter of both. Uh, all the exploration we've done has always followed uh, unmanned robotic missions out there. They are absolutely essential to doing manned missions. Uh, they like to talk about, look what robots can do these days. I'll tell you, you know, one man for a couple of hours could do everything that the Mars rovers did, for example. Uh, not that the rovers were not a wonderful success. It's one of NASA's highlights in the last 50 years, in my opinion. 
It's just that there's a world of difference between what you can do, man and unmanned. And believe me, robotic exploration of the planet is never going to excite the young people to go into technology and science like just having one human being taking one step there on Mars, for example. Uh, the motivation comes from those kind of things. So I'm a strong supporter of both robotic and uh, um, and missions. All right. Now, along the lines of deciding which way to go, do you believe that privatized space industry has a potential? And if so, what role do you believe the government should play, if any, in privatized space? Well, uh, in an ideal world, a space company could take a look at the marketplace out there for things to be done in space. Uh, right now, it focuses on launching satellites and things like that. You take a look at it, what the market was, what the uh, income you could get from it, uh, what kind of a return that would uh, pay investors, and you would go out and try to raise money. After you raised a couple rounds of venture capital, you'd try to take it public. Uh, it probably, in this day and age, it would require some kind of government guarantees or some government contracts on the books and what have you. Now, I, I told you I have a background in venture capital. I have yet to see a scenario in space that is commercially viable unless it is uh, subsidized by the government. And that's not truly commercial. People would like to talk about it that way, but that's not truly commercial. So I think that the only way for some time, probably beyond my lifetime, that we can have a successful, quote, commercial, unquote, company is it have to be living off of the government. I don't know any other way of doing it. Uh, the other thing you can, if you have a possibility, is if you can have the technology that has to be developed, if it could have other spin-offs that they would be able to exploit. But if you do it on the government dollar, it becomes part of the public uh, domain, and it's tough for them to do that. Uh, space especially space exploration, is not a viable commercial uh, business today. Walt, I've worked for the FAA. I started my career in 1975, and I work on ILS systems, Vortec uh, equipment, communications, and weather. With your 4,500 hours of flight time and participation in the Texas Aerospace Commission, you got tremendous experience in the aviation world. I'm interested in your thoughts about the FAA and the safety of the national airspace system in the U.S. and changes that you've seen over the years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. When you look at look at those 4,500 hours, I tell you, I started off as an all-weather fighter pilot, second lieutenant, with one ADF. That was my total nav gear. Uh, so by the time I got to an ILS and VOR, <clears throat> I was fat city. Uh, so the onboard navigation capability, is, is, I think, is tremendous these days. There is no question that the United States is suffering in its overall uh, FAA uh, flight control system. Uh, I don't know what the, 
the solution is. Didn't they recently just cancel something after spending several billion dollars trying to develop it? That's been typical for my uh, nearly a 35-year career. And uh, I've read several places that uh, uh, the Canadians, I think, have a good system going. Is that correct? I'm not sure I follow that one. Can you well, elaborate? I've, I've read that the Canadians have a, a, a very successful control system running down across the Pacific and some other places. So uh, I think it's a good place to focus and concentrate because there's no question in my mind that we're going to have more and more air travel and uh, people are going to be more and more uh, angry at delays and things. Uh, I don't know what the solution is to airport crowding, though. That's always been a problem because there's so many. There's only so many strips of asphalt that you can put aircraft on, and only so close you can put them to each other. Right now, if they were a vertical takeoff and landing, <laughs> hmm. yeah. Uh, incidentally, we are. Uh, one more thought I would leave here, since I'm, I'm laying myself out for criticism with everything I say, is I strongly believe that. The only way that a viable long-term space program can exist is if we have reusable uh, horizontal landing vehicles that can be used over and over and hopefully eventually horizontal takeoff vehicles, at least the first stage, to do that. So I would like to hope that we are working our way, somebody, someplace is working towards doing that with you know, ramjet propulsion or something. Because what we are going to eventually do, we're going to have a space program that operates out of Earth orbit, not down here on the surface. And that, that, all that uh, uh, movement back and forth between uh, the Earth and the Earth orbital operation is going to be done with a uh, flyable vehicle, uh, reusable, and hopefully piloted as opposed to automated. But that's where we're going to be running our space program out of. We will be launching uh, interplanetary or lunar flights out of Earth orbit, not off of the Earth. And we ought to be starting to work our way towards that. I've got another question. I thought I was through, but uh, I've got to ask this because I'm always the passenger. I'm not a pilot. I'm riding in the back of the uh, aircraft with the curtains closed up front, not even able to see out front. What's your favorite aircraft or spacecraft? <clears throat> well, I can't imagine any better spacecraft ever than the space shuttle. I never got to fly it. I've flown the simulator a couple of times. I love it. <clears throat> and I like it, the way it comes back to Earth as opposed to being dropped in the ocean like a bag of cats. Uh, <clears throat> airplanes, I'd have to go along with the, the toy airplane I flew for so many years at NASA, the T-38. It's lovely, lovely, nice airplane. I think in eight years of flying, probably, I don't know, 35, 40 hours a month, I think I left I think I think left one airplane one time and had to go on uh, commercial. So uh, yeah. I, I love any uh, high-performance airplane. I'm not much a fan of any of the other kinds. Thank you. I like hearing your personal perspective on it with the experience you've got. That's invaluable. Uh, sir, just a, a, a real quick question with reference to uh, the younger folks and when you talk about uh, Apollo to them. 
how are the how is the whole idea of going to the moon received by them right now? I mean, do they take it for granted that it's just part of their history, or are they actually still fascinated by the entire adventure? Uh, a lot of changes. I I still talk to several youth groups a year, all the way from college down to middle school. And there was a time back in the 60s and early 70s, everybody wanted to go into space. Everybody wanted to be an astronaut. Today, if you ask everybody to raise their hands, you know, those of you who would like to work for NASA, you only get a few hands. It's, uh, it's a totally different world. And you talk about knowing about space. They don't know much about space history. If they have a half a page in a high school history book, it will cover Apollo 11, and that's it. And they don't know how to talk about the real inspirational aspects of it, the motivation. But it's just a plain fact of life that if you say, well, somebody asked me when I was in high school, to, told me to study hard because I could go to the moon, they'd have been crazy. We knew it was crazy because that was impossible. But today, if you tell somebody in high school, you know, you ought to really work hard because you could go to Mars someday. That is a real truth. I mean, it's so much easier to talk about going to Mars today than it was talking about going to the moon in 1960. Uh, we are losing the ball in education. Uh, we're focusing far too much on social issues, political correctness, self-esteem and all of that stuff as opposed to just exposing kids to the biggest challenges they can have and let them, you know, measure up if they can. Walt, obviously, um, if you could pick any direction for NASA, it sounds like you would say we need to go to Mars. Do you yeah. think, do you think that, or can you give us a projection in most realistic terms, what do you think it's going to take to get there? Do you think this is a trip that's going to take two or three years? Do you think there is the possibility of coming out with some sort of quote-unquote warp drive or ion drive engine that can get us there in a month? I, I The radiation is obviously a big problem for the astronauts being exposed for so long. What What do you think is our best option to pursue or our best chance of getting there? Well, our only real deal breaker right now is the uh, radiation exposure. Uh, but that might be solved too. I mean, we have there's a lot of things that seem impossible uh, to get solved. That one, that one is a real challenge. Uh, and we're talking about propulsion systems that will speed up the journey. Uh, <clears throat> of those, nobody wants to talk about the one that we'd have probably have the best chance soonest on is uh, some kind of nuclear propulsion. Uh, but I think that that's, that that's longer coming than, uh, than our target to get to, to Mars. I don't know. I wouldn't even want to bet on a target to go to Mars because I don't see anybody that's really committed to doing it. But I think that if we were really committed, we would be able to go with existing propulsion systems. We'd be able to survive two-and-a-half-year missions. I wouldn't recommend landing on the surface. The difference in cost and, and challenge is, uh, you know, several-fold bigger in doing that. But we could go out to Phobos or orbit Mars and come back, and I think we could do that successfully. Uh, 
they were talking about, you know, a crew of six to do it. I'm not sure why it would take a crew of six. It would just be a lot more arguments. Uh, and, of course, John Young, you know, he said, send old men because they're only not coming back. <laughs> I think he's just trying to get picked for the mission. <laughs> <laughs> I volunteered, too. <laughs> All right, one last question, and this is probably the most difficult question of the entire night. Okay, I doubt that, but go ahead. Are there any new projects that you're working on or anything else of yours that you wish to plug? (laughs) I've been collecting material for a couple years to do another book, but it's not on uh, space. Uh, Just part of it will be dealing with space, but I haven't... uh, I know how difficult it is, how long it took me to write that, uh, The All-American Boys. I'd like to do a book on, I call it Death by PC, how uh, diversity, multiculturalism, and political correctness is killing a once great nation. Okay, and the book, The All-American Boys, is for sale on Amazon.com. Sorry, you'd leave a link in the show notes not a problem for any of our listeners that would like to check it out and order that yeah it's still it's becoming a classic you know my first edition was in 1977 and i still get people that write rave reviews of it and i have that copy the 1977 version i'm holding it right now i'll have to go ahead and get the revised copy sir i I have a special Walt Cunningham signed copy when I met you once at a book signing. Well, that's good. I also have a uh, uh, unabridged uh, audio book that I read myself. And people mm-hmm. like that even better. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much, Walt. This has been extremely uh, exciting to talk to you. I mean, you, you are American history. And it is great to hear your take on where we need to go in the future. And this has been just a thrill and an honor for the Talking Space team to have you on our show and hear what you have to say about NASA and current space policy. Thank you again so much, Walt, for sharing your amazing insight with all of us. And I just want to also thank our panelists this evening, Gene McCulka. Thank you. It's uh, always an honor. And uh, this was uh, sure a very, very special event. Mark Ratterman. I love talking to a professional and learning what what they've seen and what they think today. And Sawyer Rosenstein. Thank you. I'd say this is definitely up there and one of our best. Although there is one more thing I do have to say before we finish this up, if you don't mind. May I? Go right ahead. By all means. All right. Have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are. Thank you.